I was a 25-year-old pastor. I had just started at the church that I was a part of. And, uh, well, actually I hadn't because I was a college intern there for a long time. But I had just started like officially. They called me pastor now. I wasn't like the intern that just got coffee and shined the pastor's shoes. I was doing other things at that point. And uh, there was a day when there were no other pastors available. That's the only way to describe it. So they called me. And they said, we need you to drive to the hospital immediately in Indianapolis. There's a mother with a 10-year-old daughter who's just at the end of her life, and we need you to go. And I'm 25 years old. I had just graduated from college. I had just gotten married. It's a 30-minute drive to get there. And in the 30-minute drive, the whole time I'm praying, and I'm like saying, like, I believe that the Holy Spirit can impart wisdom. I need something right now because I've got nothing to say. Like, I was trying to go through, like, my 25-year-old well of wisdom, and there was nothing there, right? Because I had learned about these things in Bible class, and I had learned about, like, pastoral care in college, but I'd never actually sat with somebody in a moment like that. And so I'll never forget, I, I showed up at the hospital. I called the other pastors frantically the whole time, and it was like, why is no one else coming? You guys have abandoned me. Uh, and uh, I walked up the stair, or went in the elevator, and walked into this room, and the little girl had passed away about 15 minutes prior to when I got there, and there was just a mother in the room by herself crying over her daughter. And I tried to come up with something, right? There's got to be some kind of verse. There's got to be some kind of theology. There's got to be some kind of wisdom that I can bring in this moment but my 25-year-old self didn't know those things. I'm, I'm 46, I've lived in a, an entire adult life since then, and I've got lots of things I could say now. Like I could sit down now and I could walk through the theology of death and the theology of mourning. I could, there's, there's tons of stories I could tell. I could tell, I, I could talk about how I've sat with other parents who are mourning over the loss of their kids. I can talk about the way God redeems brokenness. I have all the theology and everything to do that now that I didn't have then. But in that moment, I walked into the room and I just said, I'm so, so sorry. And I just started crying. And for the next hour and a half, until the real pastor showed up, all I did was sit and cry. I sat next to this mom who I had never met before. I put my hand on her shoulder. I prayed awkward prayers. And I cried with her and, and I sat with her. And sometimes I wonder if I was actually smarter when I was 25 than I am now. Uh, sometimes there's pain in our lives that doesn't need a platitude or a story or a cliche or a scripture or a verse or something. It just needs somebody to sit with us and mourn. And I don't know how you mourn. Uh, we're not good at it as a culture. Uh, Americans are good at a lot of things. We're good at building stuff. We're good at making things. We're good at winning. We're good at wearing American flag shorts on July 4th and setting off fireworks. Like, there's lots of things that we're good at, but personal sorrow is not one of them. We don't know what to do when we get laid off. 
and there's not another job available. We don't know what to do when a relationship ends that we treasured and thought was important and were hurt and wounded by it. We don't know what to do when that bill has come due and the money isn't in the bank account to pay for it. We don't know what to do when the doctor says the news is not good. We don't know what to do in all of those things, but when disappointment strikes, the one thing that we are good at is minimizing our sorrow, pushing it down, hiding it, and filling it up with platitudes and cliches that don't actually matter. We actually do this to each other. When we get bad news, we say things to each other like, oh, it's not that bad. Like imagine if this would have happened, or imagine if this thing would have gone on, or we, we, we try and persuade each other to do things like, well, you know what you need to do? You need to go shopping. You need to treat yourself to a really good meal. You need to binge watch whatever the new Netflix show is. I don't know what it is. Whatever that is, you need to binge watch that this weekend and everything's going to be okay. Uh, I think when we mourn, we don't need platitudes. We don't need cliches. We don't need shopping. The number one thing we need is the presence of Jesus in our midst. And Jesus actually teaches. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually teaches us in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn. And I want to talk about that, but before I do, I want to circle back to kind of where we were last week. We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're talking about the way of Jesus. And so we're not necessarily talking about what we believe and how we live this out. We're talking about how we carry our beliefs, how we hold our beliefs. Uh, the Beatitudes are an example of what a community of faith looks like when they live together and live out the calling of Jesus. So Jesus in, in, in Matthew chapter five, gathers his disciples together in front of a crowd and he preaches the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Like there's been some Sundays where I drive home and I'm like, yeah, I did it. Right? I, that was it. Like I, I was funny, I was poignant. There was a guy in the back that usually is asleep and he, he wasn't asleep this time. Two people after the service said, good job, pastor, which is like a record, Right? Like, it was, it was amazing. Like, I did it today. Uh, Jesus brought an actual word that has lasted over centuries of time, over and over and over again. When people talk about wisdom, they talk about this passage. And even if you take all the spiritual goodness, even if you don't believe in Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God and don't believe that his kingdom has come and that he's working in this world, you can just take the wisdom of these passages and apply them and say this wisdom is as beautiful as anything Socrates ever brought. It's as beautiful as any thinker ever brought into the world. And all of these ideas that Jesus brings are an incredible way of how humanity actually functions as humans. He's teaching us how to live as followers of Jesus and how to live in the kingdom. Some say this sermon is a mirror designed for us to look at ourselves and to recognize how far we need to come. Others say it's our code for morality as followers of Jesus. Some say it's only for the elite Christians. This is like the super Christians. Like if you wanna be a super Christian, do these things. Like this is the model of what super Christians do. Some say it's just about Christian ethics. Um, but this sermon is about our ethics. 
but it troubles us because Jesus doesn't talk about ethics the way we want him to talk about ethics. Jesus doesn't talk about the things the way the rest of the world talks about all of these things. This is incredibly, incredibly countercultural. And everything that Jesus is teaching us in this passage pushes against our way and shows us that there's a different way. It pushes against the way of the world in Jesus' time, way back when he's preaching this, and it pushes against the way of the world in our time today as we try and navigate what this looks like. Stanley Hauervoss says this, he says, virtue may be its own reward, but for the Christian, the kinds of virtues suggested by the Beatitudes are the names of a shared life made possible in Jesus. N.T. Wright says, this sermon isn't just about how we behave, It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that needs it so badly. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of requirements that we need, but it's an invitation to a new way. It's an invitation to a new life. It's an invitation to a posture that the followers of Jesus inhabit and embody in the world. And in, and in that, there, are, there is both kind of a definition of this is the way, and then there's a distinctive of what this looks like. So Douglas brilliantly started us off last week by talking about the way of humility. And, and you can think about this in kind of terms of these are building blocks. Right? So the Beatitudes operate almost as building blocks, and if you don't get the first one, you're not going to get the rest of them. So there's this idea of we are humble, and because we're humble, we recognize we need a savior. So we live in the way of humility, but the distinctives of a disciple of Jesus is we acknowledge our need for a savior. We acknowledge that I've tried my way, and my way isn't working, and I think there's a better way, and so I'm humble enough to confess that my way isn't working, and I need somebody else to help guide me. If we don't get this, it's as if the rest of the, of the pyramid, as we go up, this is like a pyramid scheme. It's Jesus' pyramid scheme. If, 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 this doesn't, if we don't get the bottom thing, then it all falls apart. Like nothing else works in it. And so we start with this way of humility, and we move on this week to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, where it says this. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we start with this idea of we are in need of humility, but, but it doesn't end there. Like, I'm humble enough to, to admit that there's a problem in the world, that I need somebody to help guide me, but blessed are those who mourn takes it a step further. We're not just saying blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It moves on to say blessed are those who mourn, which means this, we're, that we're, we're not just convicted, we have contrition. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not just convicted that the world needs something different. I'm actually convicted that I'm a part of the world and I'm a part of the problem. There's a theory that's called family systems theory. Uh, it's, it's pretty brilliant to study it. Anybody who studies kind of social sciences knows a lot about it. But the idea of family systems theory is that every organization at some point begins to operate like a family. Uh, We use this a lot in church consulting, and so I go and I visit a lot of churches, and one of the things we try and diagnose as a part of our church consultancy is like, what are the family systems theories that are at play? So I went to one church uh, uh, about 
oh, it was about 10 years ago, it was a long time ago, and the pastor said to me, like, none of my young leaders are actually launching and taking responsibility and are going out and doing their own thing, and I can't figure out why our discipleship process is stalling. And I got in a room with a group of leaders from the church, and all of the young men that worked on that staff, it was a really big church, and so it was a big room of like 100 staff people, and we're working together. And, and here's what I realized really quickly, like all of the young men on that staff acted like junior high boys. Like fart jokes were very funny to them. There was a lot of like everything you drew was like, there was like a, I, I can't even say some of the things. I'm trying to filter myself right now. There was like the office jokes and like those kinds of things that are going on all the time. And there was always some kind of crass reaction to everything that was happening. And they would all kind of giggle and hang out in the back room. And the, the pastor would be up front and he'd be like, hey guys, that was really funny, but knock it off. Like that. He just kind of let them be little boys. And we talked to him about like the family system theory that's at play here is you've allowed all of your leaders to be children and you've not asked them to grow up and take responsibility and as long as you play the role of the dad that giggles at it, they're gonna play the role of the junior high kid that farts in the back in the middle of a meeting, which isn't really good just for those young leaders out there. It's not a great way to behave in meetings. Uh, and this is what your family systems theory is gonna happen. And so, so family systems theory says this, the system will stay exactly like it is until someone in the system starts behaving differently. Think about a marriage. If you've been married long enough, you've figured out the roles that you play in your marriage. One of you is the worrier, one of you is the provider, one of you is the protector, one of you is the fighter, one of you is the, like, you, you, you decide who's going to play whatever roles. And those roles will continue to operate exactly the way they are until somebody begins operating outside of the system and begins operating in a different way, which is crazy. So think about this. If you've been married for 20 years, and in the 20 years of your marriage, all you've done is kept score the whole time, you will keep score forever until somebody in your marriage says, I'm no longer keeping score. I'm not going to keep a record of wrong anymore. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to forgive before you even wrong me. And so until we step outside of the system, nothing ever changes. So we become humble in the way of Jesus and we recognize our need for a change, but we mourn over that and we decide I'm part of the problem, right? I, it's easy for us to mourn over the status of the world without ever mourning over the status of our own hearts. Are you with me? It's easy for us to mourn over what's happening over there and what's happening over here, but not what's happening right here in my heart. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that the way of Jesus teaches us to dig down and say, I'm not only mourning over this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to adopt a new way and a new possibility because it's one thing to be spiritually poor, but it's an entire another thing to acknowledge it, live in it, and mourn over it. So the way of a disciple is the way of repentance. Repentance is agreeing with God about reality and turning onto his pathway. 
So we always talk about repentance as turning, which it is, right? There's a turning that's involved in it, but it's not just a turning out of willpower or out of like, I'm going to just turn because God tells me to turn. It's actually changing my heart and my motives and my motivations to a point where I say, I actually agree with God's way and I agree with what he wants me to do. And so therefore I turn because that's what I'm invited into. And so we embrace a new way. That's the distinctive. We embrace a new way of living, which says, I don't just need a savior, I'm embracing the fact that I need to change. Does that make sense? Like the problem isn't everybody else's problem, I'm a part of the problem. And so if I wanna change the world, I start with myself. I think Michael Jackson said that, right? Or Jesus, I'm not sure which, right? Somebody, it's, it's in there somewhere, right? The, but this is what happens. So, 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 Jesus starts this sermon and he talks about this idea of blessed. So we're gonna walk through, if you wanna get a preview of the next few weeks, just we're gonna walk through all of these blessed statements and we're gonna place them on here. We're gonna talk about this is the way and this is the distinctive. And blessed is not just happy. I mean, happy is a good way to describe it, but blessed is like flourishing. It, it, it's this idea that we're flourishing. We're, we're, we're exhibiting something that's, that's new and that's fresh and we're, we're thriving. It's this idea of um, God's favor is upon you. When it says blessed are those who mourn, it, it means God's favor is upon you when you mourn. It means God is close. It means uh, you are flourishing when you mourn. And, and so it could be written as God is working in those who are poor in spirit. God is working in those who mourn. And so this morning, we want to talk about this idea of why does mourning make us blessed? Because it sounds the opposite, right? When we're mourning, it feels like we're not blessed, like bad things have happened, terrible things are going on, and so we're sad, and we're broken, and we're wounded, and we're full of pain, and we're hurting, and it's because all of these things, it's so countercultural that Jesus says, no, actually, when you mourn, that's when I'm close to you. That's when I'm working. That's when my favor is upon you. That's when you're blessed because something's about to happen. So the first thing I want to talk about is the, the idea that mourning always leads us to action. Like, I don't think any great problem has ever been solved in our world without first the people who solve the problem mourning over it. Mourning leads us to action. We should actually beware of the person who is mourning because when they rise up from that status of mourning, they're going to live a life that makes a difference. They're gonna change the world. Allie talked about the Discovery Weekend that's coming up. I'm really excited about that and I love to watch our church go through that process. If you haven't gone through it, you've gotta go through it because what that discovery process does is it looks at your life we pay attention to your stories. We pay attention to your high points of your life, the hard times of your life, the difficulty, the challenges. And we look at your life and we say, okay, what is God saying through your life? And oftentimes, I, I, I can't tell you how many times our career path is decided by what we mourn over. The thing that breaks our heart is, is, is what decides our future. So when my sister was a little girl, she, she had a tumor they shaved her head. I remember this. She was in third grade. They shaved her head, and she went through all of this trauma and trial and had to go through all these different things. And, and as she got older, she wanted to be a doctor. 
because she wanted to be a healer. She wanted to help. She wanted to, to provide the same kind of comfort that somebody provided for her when she was in this deep place of mourning and brokenness. This is oftentimes how we decide our pathway is because mourning actually leads us to action. Think about scripture. Think about Nehemiah. The first step before Nehemiah goes and rebuilds the wall is he mourns over it. He gets a report that, that Israel is in ruins, that everything's falling apart, and he hits his knees, and he falls down, and he, he begins to mourn, and he begins to grieve over all of it. Moses actually kills a dude in his brokenness and in his mourning because he's beginning to see what's happening in the middle of people's lives and it leads to this time in the desert where he begins to mourn and out of that mourning, God redeems it and uses it for good. We trust that God is working at all times and so we never attempt to solve a problem until we've actually mourned over it. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs and dreamers and we're starting all of these things and one of the things that we're teaching them is that if you're building a company or you're building a ministry or you're creating a nonprofit or you're creating anything that you wanna invest your life in, if it's not something you're willing to suffer for, it won't go well. And so one of the ways we determine, is this a kingdom dream? Is this a dream from God? Or is this just the burrito I ate for lunch? Like, or is this just I'm, 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 I'm wanting to start something new and I'm antsy or those kinds of things? Is we imagine, imagine yourself five years from now. Imagine it's been hard. Imagine it's been difficult. Imagine it's been challenging. Will you still want to work towards solving this problem? If you're willing to suffer for it, it means you've mourned over it. It means you've grieved over it. Mourning is an acknowledgement that we can't control it, but we trust that God can. And so much of our relationship with God is us trying to put God in our box and control him. It's trying to get him to act in a certain way. And so rather than saying, God, I need you to act, I need you to move, I need you to do this, this, and this before I can stop grieving, mourning is us going to a place before the Father and saying, I don't know what's gonna happen, Lord, but I trust you. I'm hurting, but I trust you. I'm wounded, but I trust you. I'm in pain, but I trust you. It's not controlling the outcome or telling God how he has to handle it. It's surrendering what's happening. In Jewish culture, they call this sitting shiva. So oftentimes what will happen is when a funeral happens, particularly in the Old Testament, there's all of these passages in the Old Testament where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? There's these moments where it talks about people tearing their clothes. There's moments where they talk about them covering themselves with ashes. All of those moments, what they're talking about is this idea of sitting Shiva. And what that means is after somebody passes away, if there's a death in the family, if there's this moment of grieving, what's actually taught is that you sit in your pain. It's so countercultural for Americans. We wanna run from our pain immediately. We wanna numb ourselves to our pain. We wanna get out of the painful situation as immediately as possible. And so when hurt comes in our lives, we instantly say things like, well, I'm just going back to work. I had a guy on a phone call this week who actually bragged because when his, both of his parents died, he didn't take any days off. And he thought that was a badge of courage for him as a pastor. That's the way we act, is if I can just numb myself to this, if I can just run away from this. And so sitting Shiva is this idea that for a week, you're just going to sit in your pain. You're gonna sit 
in your woundedness. You're gonna surrender it to God. You're gonna acknowledge this is hard and this hurts and this is painful and you're gonna allow God to meet you in that space. And so we all need to ask the questions, where have I become numb to pain that God actually wants me to surrender to him? Where have I been running and hiding from mourning that I actually am invited to experience with God? And where have I been trying to control God rather than trusting him? Uh, the second key for us is that we mourn over other sin but not our own. This is the challenge. We're really good at grieving over what other people do and really bad at grieving what we do. We're really good at naming and blaming, and that's been around from the very beginning, way back in the garden where Adam was like, she made me do it. We've been doing that ever since. We've been blaming someone else for our own challenges and our own problems. And I worry sometimes that by making so much of grace, we make light of sin. That by making so much of Jesus' love and forgiveness and grace and kindness, by doing all of those things that we minimize actually the pain that our sin causes to the Father and causes to the people around us. Like I am keenly aware that my children are affected by my sin. I am well aware that my children know and, and understand the ways that their daddy doesn't get it right. And I'm terrified, right? that they're gonna end up in some counseling session in 10 years and be like, my daddy did this, like all of those, they might be in there now. Like I'm worried about all of those things happening because I'm aware that my own brokenness can compound and can affect those around me. But oftentimes we don't mourn those things. We mourn the wrong things. We mourn over the fact that we don't get what we want. We mourn over the fact that somebody else disappointed us. We mourn everybody else's motives and motivations, but we don't ever mourn our own. We judge others far more harshly and critically than we do ourselves, particularly right now and particularly on social media. So uh, about two weeks ago, we, we've, our, our house, we bought a house out on the West End, uh, West Cobb, uh, West Side's the best side, uh, and uh, yeah, about half of you are going to leave the church now. Um, we bought a house out there, and we, we bought a house, we didn't realize, it's on a, there's a hill that's kind of behind us, and then there's a swimming pool in our backyard. And when we bought it, we didn't think through, like, maybe they haven't put a drainage system for this hill in, and uh, maybe when it rains, the water comes down that hill and into our swimming pool. And so uh, about once every summer for the last five years, our pool has kind of filled with mud. I think we've got an actual video of it. Here you go. It's super fun. <laughs> it's really great. So this happened about two weeks ago. And as this was happening, I had just spent the previous two months cleaning the mud out of the pool from the last time. This happened on a Saturday at 7 p.m. I had been to the pool store three times that day. And I had said to my daughter, invite your friends, tomorrow we're swimming. And she had invited all her friends over to swim in our pool, and then that happened. And I immediately went to mourning. Uh, I actually went, I don't know, dads, if you have this impulse, but I'll, I'll give you a little confession time. I immediately went into yelling at anyone who was around me. 
I was furious. And I was furious because I knew it was going to take me another month, month and a half to clean up the pool. And every time this happens, it costs us $500. And so I was furious about that. And then I was also furious because that's exactly how pastoring has felt in the last year. That every time we get something cleaned up, the rains come and the pool fills with mud again. That every time people start coming back to church, there's a Delta variant that comes. That every time the world starts to settle down and everyone has stopped yelling at me, somebody says something and somebody's yelling at me again. <laughs> that is exactly how it's felt. And so I, like, I, I'm not kidding, and this, this may sound terrible to you, but I, like, there were two days where I was just, do not approach me after that happened. I was so angry, I was like, I'm gonna go after our neighbor at the top of that hill and he's gonna pay for this and we're gonna make him and we're gonna, I was, I was just in this, I was, I was mourning and I was angry and I was frustrated, but I was mourning and angry and frustrated about all the wrong things. I started saying to my wife, I told you we should have moved to the East End. I told you we could afford a house out there. I told you that we should be over in that side of town and we're arguing back and forth and there's this, like it was a mess in the house. I'm yelling at my kids all of these things, and, and uh, I finally had a moment of perspective. And I sat with Jesus for a minute, and, uh, and as I sat with Jesus, there was just this clear message of like, hey, you're sad about all the wrong things. You're mourning all the wrong things. Uh, you're sad about the pool, but I'm grieved about your heart. You're sad about how hard this season has been for you. I'm grieved about how hard it's been for people who've lost loved ones and people that are genuinely hurting and people who genuinely don't know how to express their anger and frustration other than yelling at their pastor. I'm grieved over that stuff. And I want to change your heart. And I was like, oh, crap. Can I just be mad at the guy that lives above me? And Jesus said, no. <laughs> um, it's easy to mourn over what's happened to us without mourning what's inside of us. We're really good at acknowledging what's happening outside of us, but really poor at acknowledging what's going on inside of us. And so we, we learn this process of repenting. We learn to say to Jesus, I'm sorry, Lord for the stuff that's in my heart that doesn't look like you. I've been a pastor for 26 years now, and there's a ton of stuff inside of me that doesn't look like Jesus yet. And I'm working on it, and I'm growing, and if you ask my wife, I think she'll tell you that I get a little better every year, like maybe a little bit, but all of us are in this place where we are in this continual process of humbly saying to Jesus, I need you, and I need you to help me figure out how to live in your way. The last thing is that there's a promise for those who mourn. This is the good news. Because the verse doesn't end with just the blessed part. For it says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
And so the good news for all of us is that in our pain, in our grieving, in our hurt, in our heartache, in our woundedness, in any moment that we're experiencing, he is there, he is present, he is with us, and he offers his comfort to those who run to him. Like the only way we resolve our pain is in the presence of Jesus, guys. It's the only way we figure it out, is that we go to Jesus over and over again and say, I, 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 I don't know what to do, Lord. I'm hurting, I'm broken, I'm wounded, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm sad. I'm, we, we name all of those things, we surrender them to the Father, and we ask him to work in those situations. Uh, this week, man, I, I don't know about you guys, but this week just felt like this really heavy week. We got news of Haiti early on in the week, and then we got news of Afghanistan later on in the week, and, and I have missionary friends who are in Afghanistan. I know people on the ground in Afghanistan, and I know their lives are threatened right now because they believe in Jesus. I got news this week that three people I know died of COVID this week. Friend from high school, uh, my old executive pastor lost his wife this week, and a friend lost her mom. All of that happened in the last seven days. And it, it, I was sitting down to write this sermon. It was on Thursday, and I was just feeling super heavy with all of this. And so I, I, I called a friend who's kind of, uh, um, he's a shrink. Uh, and I, I called him, and, and I was just like, hey, man, I, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with all this. Like, it just feels so heavy, and it feels like too much. And it feels like I've got to stand in front of a bunch of people on Sunday who are all experiencing the same heartache and the same hurt, and I don't know what to say to them. And he said this, he said, what if we learn to just take one thing and hold it up to Jesus and ask him to meet us there? And each day, we just pick the one thing and we hold it up to Jesus and we ask him to meet us there. Because there is a reality that our bodies and our minds were not actually made to intake the amount of bad news we receive on any given day. Uh, I was reading an article that said uh, the equivalency of the amount of bad news that we receive on any given week is the equivalency of reading 178 local newspapers. So just through social media and our news. Because the world used to operate where something like Afghanistan would happen and those of us in America would find out about it six months later. We'd find out about it a year later. We'd find out about it, whatever. If there was a video of somebody doing an atrocious thing, we didn't see it for months. Now, we get five of those videos a day. We get this bad, we're inundated with mourning. We're inundated with bad news. We're inundated with pain and brokenness and hurt, and you add that to the, what we've all experienced over the last two years, and we don't know how to deal with our mourning and our brokenness and our hurt and our pain and all of the stuff that we've taken in. It's like we've taken all of this stuff in, and I'm just reading it in people. There's a lot of people who are responding to the world the way I responded to that pool. Like There's so much mourning, and it's been pushed down over and over again, and so when they're triggered, it just comes out as like quick anger. I don't know if you're noticing that in yourself. Like my trigger's a little quicker. I always, I say to my wife sometimes, I feel really emotionally thin. Like I feel like anything could set me off at any moment. I feel all of these things that I'm experiencing. And so on a week like this week, I, I, I think we've gotta learn 
to fall in love with Jesus in the quiet place. I think we've got to learn to sit with him and hold that one thing up to him and say, I need to surrender this to you today. And I need you to meet me here. And I don't know how you're going to work it out, but I trust that you're going to work it out. And so this week I took a day where I just prayed for Afghanistan. And I just prayed for my friends. And I just said, all day today, that's, my, that's where my heart's going to be. I took a day this week where I just prayed about COVID, prayed about what are we supposed to do and what's next. And I, I, I just surrendered all of my fears to Jesus and said, here's all the stuff I'm afraid of again. I'm afraid of my wife getting sick because she's immune compromised. I'm afraid of how mad the church is going to be if I ask anybody to wear a mask. I'm afraid of all these things. And I don't have incredible answers coming out of those days. But I have a peace that God is in control and that he's good. And so today, as we wrap up the service, uh, I want to just have a time for us to hold one thing up to Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody take a deep breath with me for a second, just a big deep breath. Here's the good news. Jesus, the comforter, is here. And he wants to meet with you. And he wants to meet you in your place of need and in your place of brokenness. And so I want you just to pray in a coming minute. And I want you to think about what's the one thing that I need to hold up to Jesus this morning? What's the one thing that I need to say, Lord, I've been carrying this too long and I just need to surrender it to you? What's the one thing that Jesus is inviting you to bring to him and surrender it? And so I know that I can be sad that my son went off to college this week. But I have a comforter who will meet me in that sadness. I can be sad over everything that's happening in the world. But I have a comforter that will meet me in that place. I can be sad over the health crisis that's going on in our country but I have a comforter that will meet me in that place. And so whatever it is that you're mourning over, stop pushing it down. Stop numbing yourself to it. Stop pretending like it doesn't exist or that it's not that big of a deal. And surrender it to Jesus. And so the band's gonna come and they're gonna lead us in some final worship time and the prayer team is gonna be in the back and I just, if you wanna pray with somebody, I wanna invite you to go to the back and then we're gonna do something that we occasionally do um, and sometimes it turns out great and sometimes nobody responds at all but we're gonna open up the front of the stage here as an altar and if you need to just come and just say, I'm giving it to you, Jesus. I'm laying it down. Uh, I just wanna invite you to come and just kneel at this altar. I, I don't know what it is but there's something really powerful that happens when we step forward and when we humbly just kind of say, all right, Jesus, I, I'm hurting and I, I'm not afraid to acknowledge it in front of my friends and people and maybe grab some friends and have them come with you and pray. 
Um, but we're going to open up this space, and we're just going to open up a time for Jesus to meet us in our hurt. Um, and comfort doesn't mean that there's going to be a solution immediately. But comfort does mean that there is a presence that's available to us. And so, Heavenly Father, right now, I just pray as we move into a time of communion and as we take the juice and as we take the bread and as we move into a time of ministry time and of worship, I just pray that you would stir our hearts, each of us individually, to know the one thing that we're called to surrender to you, to acknowledge our need of a Savior and to acknowledge our own pain and our own brokenness and to learn to repent. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this time in a way that only you can use it. And I pray that you would lead us into the presence of the Comforter who loves us, who guides us, who gives us wisdom, who sits with us, who sticks with us even when we keep making the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again. And who teaches us how to walk even when we're how to move forward even when we're broken. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would release an anointing in this room of comfort. I pray right now that you would come in power and you would come in authority and you would come in strength. And that you would lead us to places of mourning pray, Jesus, that as a church, as we rise up from our places of mourning and as we rise up from these places of hurt and woundedness and brokenness, that you would use that mourning for us to become the solution the world needs. So, Father, meet us in this place as we